0: Hello and welcome back So this week's podcast we're joined by Lucy Radford from the Sumatran Orangutan Society who is speaking with us about their work to protect the critically endangered species. Lucy explains a range of new and exciting ideas being applied to conservation contexts and the projects being implemented for local people to develop communities sustainably on their terms. If you like this episode and want to follow more of this project please follow the links in the description if you'd like to support us, you can make a donation at restoredplant.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, and welcome back to Restore Plant Podcast with me, your host, Jack Cole. So today I'm joined by Lucy Radford from the Sumatran Orangutan Society, known as uh, SOS. So, Lucy, welcome. Start with telling us a little bit about your background in primate conservation and how you got into your work.
1: Hi, um, yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, so I've been working in the sort of broad primate conservation area since 2011. Um, I did an undergrad degree in biological anthropology and in that I sort of I, I found so, like so many fascinating things about non-human primates and as well about sort of um, human evolution and that sort of directed me a bit towards um, primate conservation. but the real tipping point for me was, um, I went to volunteer at the Monkey Sanctuary um, when I was in my second year of uni and that just from that point onwards I thought oh, yeah I definitely need to work with monkeys or apes um, and then yeah 2010 I did a master's in primate conservation in Oxford um, and that kind of directed me more towards the human element of conservation because you know you can't separate um, sort of conservation and people they're so interlinked and I, my favourite parts of my masters were where we were learning about the history of conservation and its effects on people and how important it is to be inclusive of um, local and indigenous people when conducting conservation projects. So when I graduated from my masters, I knew I was only, I only ever wanted to work for projects which had that um, at the forefront, really. So, For five years, I worked in Morocco on a a macaque conservation project, which was absolutely amazing, really loved it. Um, But it was on a voluntary basis because they're just sort of operating on a shoestring. So um, I was sort of doing that alongside temporary jobs. Um, And then in 2018, I saw a job advertised at SOS, Um, went for it and got it. (laughs) So um, I've now been with SOS for four and a half years and yeah just the the more i sort of work at the charity the more the more i keep learning about um the dynamics of conservation and how yeah you've got to always be um i don't know prepared for anything to change and conservation is affected by like anything is affected by politics it's affected by global events so yeah really just sort of learning about um how dynamic it is, and this is the fascinating sort of projects that can come um out of yeah, out of global events. So um yeah, that's my background.
0: Fantastic. You mentioned there that um sort of human society and conservation are very much interlinked. Um I sort went on a bit of a similar sort of journey myself. I just thought, oh, I'll just you know, stick to animals or leave people alone, but you suddenly realize that as you alluded to there, that you sort of get into economics and resources and, of course, forestry and things. So what are some of the um, ways in which you found that um, both sort of overlap in such crucial ways?
1: So I think um, a big thing is sort of the links between conservation and colonialism. Um, And I saw that a lot. So when I was doing the Masters, we looked a lot at conservation in African countries. Um, And I, I read quite a lot of papers on you know, the, the old sort of finds and fences approach and very much pushing people out and keeping the wildlife for um, rich people to hunt, for example, that's, that's very reductive, but it's sort of, a, you know, a simple way of explaining it. Um, and that, yeah, that narrative is very much still present. We, um, in our strategy at SOS, we have decolonizing conservation as a major thread. Um, you know, everything we do has to be you know we have to be very mindful of the the fact that a lot of traditional conservation was born out of colonialism and um just looking at the way that we can affect change without perpetuating those problematic sort of um yeah those those problematic overtures really so that's one huge way in which it, it's linked and one thing that i think the conservation sector as a whole is really moving towards is trying to not replicate the errors of the past and to take into account local politics, national politics, um, learning a lot more from local expertise, rather than always um, flying in, literally, um, expertise from elsewhere. So, yeah, that's a real crossover. Um, And I think just, yeah, there's just so many, to me, The human-wildlife interface is so fascinating and I can't imagine why people wouldn't want to (laughs) to look at it. Um, I'm a member of an IUCN specialist group for human-primate interactions and that is just, yeah, the research going on in that is so fascinating about how um, humans and wildlife kind of interact and intersect. So, yeah, yeah. I think I've gone off on a slight ramble there, but okay,
0: <laughs> there's no, so many crossing points. Well, so. no, that's really interesting, actually. I think that leads on quite nicely. I'm really, I am really actually wanted to ask, what would be a less colonial way of doing conservation in a modern uh, you know, uh, environment?
1: So I think it's just being really... It, it's working with local and national um, people and governments and organisations. Um. And listening really listening is one of the, the massive things is not assuming that you know best um just because you come from a registered charity or a big ngo um it's so important to really put in the slow careful work to understand what people need um, and unfortunately that can be quite hard to do when you're restricted by funding time scales and um and people want quick results but ultimately that's not How it works. So what we're doing now is we're trying to do more program-based work rather than project-based. So we've got these long-term goals in mind, and we we have know from the start that it's not going to be quick to achieve those goals. It takes weeks, months, even years of collaborating with communities, earning trust, finding the right people to work with and the right expertise in the area, doing those ongoing Ecological and biodiversity surveys alongside it, so there's the that element of it as well. Um, it, it's avoiding that kind of sticking plaster approach of well, we we've come in, we've got this much money to fund this area, and we've decided this is what we're going to do, and we'll do it, and we'll leave after a year, and that's the end of it. That you know we're we're not doing that. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a whole. There's people way more qualified than me to speak on decolonising conservation, it, a lot of researchers who are really at the forefront of it, but yeah, in the SOS context it is doing doing the slow, careful work um, and, and listening. <laughs>
0: okay, well, that's good, so moving on from there, would you mind telling us a little bit about the background and history of SOS, so founded in 2001 and how Lucy Wisdom, I believe her name was, got basically essentially from where she started to where things are today?
1: Yeah. So um, as you say, it was founded in 2001. Um, Lucy Wisdom was traveling in Indonesia and she encountered orangutans at a rehabilitation center. So it was orangutans, primarily infants or, um, you know, young, young orangutans who were being, had been rescued either from maybe the pet trade or their mothers had been killed and they were being taught by humans how to climb, how to sort of be orangutans again for eventual release into the wild um of course orangutan babies are incredible to watch and they really captured her her heart and her imagination but she could see that the rehabilitation of these um infant orangutans was only a tiny part of the puzzle and she wanted to set up something that took in all aspects of conservation so education was a huge thing for her she um she, from the start, worked with think There was uh, at one point something called the Orangutan, which was like a mobile education thing that went around um, to schools in Sumatra. Um, she was really keen on educating people in the UK as well. So, and we still have a sort of um, schools program and, and everything like that. Um, and it just, yeah, it just grew and grew from there. For a long time, it was very small. There was sort of one permanent member of staff, sometimes two um, for a time. Um, uh, we've now got um, four staff in the u k um and another sort of five or six working remotely from Indonesia and other areas. so it's it's growing it's going in the right direction we we're we're working with incredible experts in Indonesia um, and it's thanks to years of support from really loyal donors um some sort of we've got corporate partnerships that really enable us to grow our work and they and they do give us that funding that that means we can do as I say do that slow work. They're not asking us to produce results in six months. you know they're saying let's fund you for three years and you tell us what you need and that is absolutely crucial for the kind of work we want to do.
0: brilliant. And onto the orangutans themselves, what is their current reality on the ground sort of regarding threats and trends and their population numbers and etc?
1: Yeah, so in Sumatra, there's two species of orangutan. There's the Sumatran orangutan itself, which there's around 14,000 left in the wild. And there's also the Tapanuli orangutan, which was described by science in 2017. So it's the newest species of great ape, sort of known to science. Um, <clears throat> estimated there's about 800 of them left. So obviously very low numbers, but there's a huge amount of really good work going on to try to increase the population well to aid it to increase by protecting the habitat um the sort of trends so in terms of the forests i think there's a this um perception globally that indonesia is just losing forest really quickly that's not necessarily the case anymore the indonesian government has some really strong policies in place to keep forest standing um I read an article last week that deforestation from palm oil has dropped massively um, recently. So there's a lot of good news and a lot of good work going on. Um, the big thing that, and something that we're really focused on, is sort of making sure that orangutan populations can reach each other. Because where, so going back to the early 20th century when um, sort of colonial influences cut down forest for tobacco and rubber, Um, way back then that sort of started pushing orangutan populations apart Um, and there's a lot of opportunity to create forest corridors and to allow the populations to reach each other again which obviously aids in genetic diversity and sort of the future health of the orangutans of Sumatra so that's something that we are really sort of invested in alongside our partners in Indonesia and with support from forestry authorities and the government of Indonesia as well. So, yeah, over sort of the last 100 plus years, the population has declined, but it is stable where it is at the moment. And we have all the right tools. Um, When I say we, I don't just mean SOS, us and our partners and all the other people working in conservation um, for orangutans. We have the tools and the information we need um, to really... Yeah, to make sure they can thrive in the wild, um, and I use the word "thrive" quite deliberately because I think survival implies they're just sort of hanging on, um, but thriving is yeah those populations being connected. They can move around, they can breed um, easily with this sort of big genetic pool.
0: Brilliant. And so moving up to so now the sort of um, the sort of current current era, of what's going at the moment? What influence have current events had, if any, on uh, the state of things in, in Borneo and for your organisation? Of course, time of speaking, you know, war in Ukraine, um, post-pandemic, those sorts of things. What, what influences have those events had?
1: Um, well, the pandemic had a huge effect, particularly, or really up to about this time last year. Um, because, of course, a lot of, um, there's a lot of, money that comes into parts of Sumatra in terms of tourism, um, particularly tourists coming to see the orangutans. Obviously that couldn't happen when um, international flights were cancelled and lockdowns were happening. So um, that presented quite an issue for people who are employed in um, sort of as forest guides or taking people to see the orangutans. So um, we actually ran an emergency appeal in 2020 to raise money for um, so initially, the first phase of it was to um, provide food parcels for people who had just lost their job overnight, effectively, because the lockdowns were happening. We didn't know when they would end. We didn't know when tourists would be able to come back to Sumatra again. Um, and the second phase of that was um, called Forest Friendly Livelihoods. So um, the same people who we'd supported with the food parcels um they went on to work with a a local contact of ours called Dharma. He runs a project called Nature for Change and he um, has helped people to um, sort of to plant fruit trees in the buffer zone around one of the main national parks. So it provides um, an income for the people who plant the trees because they can sell the fruit. And it also um, provides more of a sort of green corridor for Um, orangutans and other animals like monkeys to to move around in so um, it's sort of a win-win and it provides um yeah an extra income for people they get paid to help plant the trees and they can also harvest some of the fruit as well so that was yeah covid sort of made us have to very quickly come up with those sort of approaches but um and it also meant that up until yeah, as I say, up until about this time last year, a lot of our field projects had to be put on hold because it just wasn't safe for um, people to be visiting remote villages um, where people hadn't been vaccinated, hadn't necessarily been exposed yet. Um, but yeah, it with rates are sort of falling, I think, in Indonesia and we're sort of back to being able to go and, and do all the work, or our partners rather, are able to go and do all the work on the ground that they they have been wanting to do this whole time. Um, um, yeah other events I think the major one which I'm sure comes up in every interview you do is the climate crisis um, of course anything that affects global climate patterns is going to affect rainforests is going to affect orangutans um, and whenever people ask me oh, you know what can someone sitting at home in the UK do it is It doesn't sound glamorous but it is that that basic stuff of you know contact your mp about climate policies um try to reduce your use of fossil fuels within you know your own personal capabilities um you you know vote with your wallet don't buy things from companies that are trashing the, the planet you know it's it sounds very simple to say but it is these sort of added up collective actions that ultimately we can conservation organizations all over the world can do so much but if the climate continues to change at the rate it is then you know we'll reach a point where we can't do much more so that's i think that's the really really big one is the climate crisis and we all do have the power to effect change on that
0: of course and lucy now just going back to the very beginning of your journey what were some of those really formative um, experiences that you had with primates that really inspired you, like some real kind of you know face to face, you know anecdotes or, or something that you personally went yeah. through that made you think that's it, that's the that's the journey for me.
1: Um, I think one of the uh, the biggest ones for me was um, going to South Africa in 2010, and I was helping a P- PhD student um, gather data on a troop of wild monkeys that were up in um, a mountainous region. In the north of the country and um, while sort of sitting waiting for the monkeys to pass an entire troop of baboons came past and the first thing I, I could smell them before I could see them they have a really sort of musky kind of scent to them and I sat there thinking well I probably should be afraid but there's nothing you know I'm, I'm just up here on this mountain with them I can't I'll just sit still and they'll, they'll just go by and they went by almost as if they hadn't seen me and just seeing them in the wild in that big troop that you know no cars up there to just sort of run them over no no people feeding them junk food you know just it was just a real moment of wow I'm so lucky to see this and yeah I suppose it has been yeah a few moments like that of just seeing any primates going about their business in the wild and yeah uh, and yeah it's just amazing really
0: Brilliant. Okay. And Lucy, where would you like to see things sort of head over the next five to ten years? Um, just a bit of things, I should say. Sorry, not generally in life. And, yeah, you know, just buy about. a new house and things. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: so, yeah, I think I'd like to see the current sort of positive trajectory keep going. There's a lot of amazing people and amazing organisations working really hard to ensure that orangutans can thrive in the wild. And I think, yeah, I think there's a strong chance that we will keep going. It's just, yeah, we need to keep sort of the, keep the momentum up and keep reaching the people who can support us. And um, as I say, I know banging that drum again, but going back to the climate crisis, it is, I want to see a lot more action on that and not just from individuals, but You know corporations as well so yeah i'd like to see a a lot yeah the the sort of small local stuff you know i'd love to see that continuing and and it will definitely um with our partners and the, the work we're doing um yeah and i'd love to see sort of i just can't wait to see how that pans out in the next sort of five years and and where where those projects will go really
0: brilliant and Lucy, where can people f- support you and follow you and your work and your organization?
1: Um, so, our website is orangutans sos.org, um, and there's loads to read on there, loads of information, and lots of sort of examples of things people can do. Um, and then we've got all the social media Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, LinkedIn and YouTube. Um, <laughs> if you just search orangutans sos or and Orangutan Society on those platforms, then all our all our details will come up um and yeah we really like it when people sign up to our email newsletters as well because that's sort of where you get the really like meaty information that you can't fit in a social media post
0: you see thank you for your time
1: thanks a lot